as well. I mentioned to Karina that I really picked kind of a weird and in some ways a lousy morning to be preaching on the subject of suffering uh, because we've had all this all this really colorful excitement up here but realize that the same week that this building was teeming with all that exuberance this was also the week of Charleston and it was the week of Barcelona and I don't know what has been happening in your life this past week but but I know the world, and, and so do you. And I know that seldom does a week go by when your life isn't somehow touched or affected by the reality of suffering. And so we're going to be in that part of the book of Acts that, that deals powerfully with the subject of suffering. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to flip them open to Acts chapter 7. We're going to move with some speed through much of that chapter. The book of Acts, of course, is the book of beginnings, the the beginning of the church. We go there to understand what it is that gave early Christians such power in their proclamation. We've seen it before, but we come up up against it again today. One of the things that gave the early Christians such power was how they stood in the face of suffering. Peter Berger, a, a professor who I read and studied with at uh, university, an eminent sociologist, anthropologist, says that every culture in history has always provided its members with an explanation, he says, of human events that gives meaning on the experience of suffering. Kind of hear what he's getting at, that every culture gives its people an explanation of of what you do in the face of pain and suffering, how you respond to it, how you face it, how you get through it. The thing that's most interesting about the work of uh, Peter Berger and sociologists, anthropologists, is the observation they make, and they make it unanimously, that Western culture, that's kind of what we're living in the middle of, Western culture is probably the worst in all history at equipping people to handle suffering. Why is it that there has been such an incredible outcry over the president's refusal to speak into the face of suffering in Charleston? Because we live in a vacuum of meaning. And so we look to our leaders to say something powerful, something poignant. And when they let us down, watch what happens. Essentially, Western culture uh, doesn't give any kind of coherent explanation for suffering. We're kind of left on our own. And, and people, well, they drop their, their lures in all different areas of the pond trying to, to dig up some meaning. Some people will talk about karma. Uh, people kind of get what they deserve. That's how they understand suffering. Some people evoke a, an even more deeply Eastern, almost a Buddhist approach to, to the world and the suffering, that it's all just kind of an illusion, that you just you kind of close your eyes and imagine your way through to the other side. Some people will talk about an afterlife. Uh, people have very, very little sort of fact-based, David, or, or, or Christian conviction that, would, conviction that would drive them that direction, still want to, to hold on to this persistent belief that there will be a reunion with those that they have loved and lost. That's how they face suffering. Some people will say, and there's probably lots more of them today than there have ever been, that the world as we know it is all that we have. 
So that really the only response to suffering is to do our very best to make the world that we have now a better place. So that there's less suffering in the future. But as a whole, there's very little in our world that equips people to face and respond to suffering. We're just we're plugging in little bits from here and there, from cultures and religions. We're making it up and we're making it work. But the fact remains, our culture is the worst in history at helping people trying to do this. In 17th or 16th, even 15th century Europe, for example, in, in medieval times, one out of every four or five infants died before their first birthday. At least one out of every two children died before they reached the age of 10. You buried half of your children before they reached adulthood. And yet we know from reading their journals and reading their diaries from all sorts of documents that our ancestors have passed on to us that they handled suffering in a way that's far better than, than I think we do, even though their, their lives were far more difficult. Why are we so bad at it? It's a big subject, and, and we'll touch on that just a very bit at the end of the message. But before we get there, what I really want to do is take you through the story of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first person in the book of Acts who is martyred for his faith. He dies for what he believes. So we're going to look at this passage in Acts chapter 7, and I want you to pay particular attention as we work our way through to what Stephen said, to what Stephen saw, and to what Stephen did. You'll find those sort of three notes outlining the the direction of the message there on the back page of your bulletin. We want to look at what he said, at what he saw, and at what he did. Stephen is one of the very first deacons of the church. Hands up any of you who are or have ever been deacons in the church. Some of you? Yes? You ever fear for your life? <laughs> you know, when a church meeting goes really amok? You know? it, it was serious business in those days, being a deacon in the life of the church. He was a dynamic preacher. He began a preaching ministry, and it was so effective, it was so disturbing to the ruling order that he was soon arrested. And he gets dragged before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and that's where, when this passage starts, the accusation is brought forward. The accusation comes Chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Now, in order to understand what the charges are, glance back just a little bit in chapter 6. Have a look at verses 13 and 14. And here's the accusation. This fellow speaks against the temple and the law, and he says, because of Jesus of Nazareth, we don't need either of those things, the temple or the law of God anymore. So that's the accusation. And in response, Stephen makes a speech. It's the longest speech that's recorded in the book of Acts. And what I'm going to try and do is, is to summarize it for you. It's a hard speech because it is so long. But I want to do our best together to recap it. And then we're going to focus on verses 51, 52, and 53, which really is his final point. That's where he brings it home. Throughout his long speech... And I hope you'll glance through it as we're, as we're speaking, and I hope you'll read it today. He's answering those two questions, the accusation. Are you speaking against the temple, and are you speaking against the law? 
And he goes all the way through the history of God's people, almost the whole of the Hebrew scriptures. Here's the first thing he says. I don't think we need a temple in order to find God. Abraham met God and Abraham didn't have the temple. God was with Joseph in Egypt and Joseph didn't have the temple. God met Moses way out in the wilderness in the burning bush and there was no temple then. Even after the temple was built, he goes on to say, he quotes Isaiah 66, says God doesn't dwell in a house made with human hands. He's not some tribal deity. He's not confined to a box or a shrine. So that's his first argument. You don't need the temple in order to find God, in order to meet God. You don't need to be in religious spaces. For all the extravagant grandeur of many of our church buildings, you don't have to be there in order to discover who God is. Now, that creates a problem. And it mainly has to do with the way that, that Stephen's accusers would have understood the temple and understood the law. Wait a minute, they would have said. In the temple is where you make the sacrifices. How in the world can you possibly meet God, draw close to God, if you're not obeying the law? And the law is all about sacrifice. You make a mess, you offer a pigeon. You make a bigger mess, you offer a goat. And so it goes on down the sacrificial line. So Stephen turns next to the law. And again, he goes through the whole history of Israel. First, he says, remember, under Moses, you didn't obey the law. Under Aaron, you didn't obey the law. Amos says you didn't obey the law. He's working his way through scripture again. He says, look, the law is good. I believe in the law. It's God's dream. It's his plan for how human beings ought to live in order to maximize the riches of the light that he has for us. You can't just put it aside. You can't ignore it. But here's the problem. We've never really obeyed the law. We never will obey it on our own. And if we're saved by the law, we have a problem, don't you see? The answer is no, you don't need a temple in order to, to meet God. And yes, you need to honor the law. But let's be honest. We're not obeying it. And then thirdly, he brings up something that he sees in the history of Israel that wasn't even talked about, wasn't asked about. But in many ways, it's the key to what he's going to conclude with, to the climax of his message. He says, I've noticed, this is Stephen, I've noticed a pattern in the history of our people. Every time God sends a deliverer, that deliverer is rejected, persecuted, is, is suffering under the hands of the very people that he was sent to save. Look at Joseph. Joseph was appointed by God to save his family and his people. And yet that same family abandoned him, threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery in Egypt. Moses, Moses was appointed to deliver his people, to bring them out of bondage in Egypt. And yet when he first asserted himself, his people rejected him. He had to flee into the wilderness to save his own life. David appointed to be the true king, to lead his people. And yet for large parts of his life, He's in the wilderness, on his own, fleeing for his life. Every time God sends a prophet, a deliverer, a savior, that person is rejected and persecuted. So now Stephen has talked about the temple and the law and the problem of the law and the pattern of how, of how God always sends these deliverers and how they always suffer. And here's where he brings it home. Have a look. 
verses 51, 52, and 53. Verses 51 and 53 tell us the problem. Verse 52 is the solution. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, Stephen. What's an uncircumcised heart? It's a spiritually hard heart. Here's what he's saying. You do all the external stuff, all the rituals. You're concerned about compliance. You're circumcised and all of that, but your hearts are still feared. They're still filled with fear and pride and cruelty. And it hasn't worked. Verse 53, you haven't kept the law. Your hearts are still filled with cruelty. You need a new heart. You need to be born again. You need something that you don't have. What's the solution? It's there in verse 52, which is kind of the summary of of everything that he's been driving at. Was there ever a prophet that your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've murdered him. What's going on? You're Stephen saying... I'm all for the law, too. We need to honor the law. We can't be saved without honoring the law. And yet you can't fulfill it. What's the answer? The answer is the righteous one. You know how weird it is to use that expression to describe Jesus? Very curious, very uncommon, unusual, almost like a one-off expression. Of all the things that, that Stephen could have called him here, why call him the righteous one? What does it mean to be righteous? The righteous one fulfills the law. How do you fulfill the law? The answer is that, that Jesus fulfilled the law by being the climax to that whole history of saviors, prophets, deliverers being rejected. Here's why he's the climax. With every other savior, Joseph, Moses, David, God delivered his people in spite of their rejection and suffering. With Jesus, he delivered his people through that suffering. He's the righteous one. What does that mean? How do you fulfill the law? Think about that for a second. How do you fulfill any law? Up and down Cawther Road, there's there's stoplights every 500 meters, it feels like, right? And... uh, And we're good Canadians, so when the light turns amber, we slow down, and we stop when it's red. There's laws against going through a red light. And there's only two ways to fulfill the law preventing people from going through a red light. The first one is you can stop. That's the way, incidentally, that I recommend. You can stop. The other way, though, is to go barreling on through the red light, to find the police waiting for you at the other side, to get a ticket, and then to pay the ticket. In paying the ticket, you have also fulfilled the law. The law has no more claim on you. Here's what Jesus is doing. First of all, he's going to fulfill the law by living this righteous life. He was righteous in that sense. He lived a a perfect life. He loved God in ways that no one else had ever loved God. He loved people. The way that the the world had never seen before. He lived this perfect life. So he's righteous in that sense. But that's not completely what's meant by that language, the righteous one. 
He earned the blessing of obedience, yes, but, but then he went to the cross anyway. He suffered. He was betrayed. He was denied. He died. When you believe in him, somehow that righteous one is able to take everything that was good about him and impute it, allow it to fall on you. And somehow everything that's wrong in me gets carried over onto him. It means the moment that you believe all of the consequences of disobedience is imputed to him. All the blessings that were earned by, by his life, by its perfection, comes to you. Now he's the temple. The temple's not, in a sense, done away with, but he fulfills it. He's the final sacrifice. He's the bridge now between God and human beings. He's the righteous one, the fulfiller of the law. And if you believe him, he makes all things new. Why is this such a long speech? I mean, really, this is a challenging speech for preachers because it is so long. And, and you can't really read it word by word and, and get people home before dinner time. You really ought to. Why is it such a long speech? I'm not sure I really fully realized that in, until doing some study this week. Where would Luke have gotten the speech? I mean, he's, he's very careful to lay out his plan at the beginning of the, the book of Acts, also the gospel of Luke that he wrote. He, he says that, that he wants to put together an orderly account through the testimony of eyewitnesses. Where would he have gotten this speech? I'll tell you where he got it. It was a young man. You read the text very carefully. It tells us that he was there. His name was Saul. At least that was his name at the time. Later on, we get to know him as the Apostle Paul. He was there in the crowd, consenting to Stephen's death. He was part of the execution squad. He, he held the coats of the people who were throwing rocks at him. And he absolutely lent his approval to what's going on. And yet he is the most likely source of this incredible speech. Don't you get the sense that that it began to sink deeply into his life. The reason we know it is because he remembered it. And as many people have pointed out, all of the key themes that Paul writes about in, in that vast treasure trove of letters, which comprise half of the, of the New Testament, all of those key themes are developed right here from Stephen's speech. Paul heard them. Paul remembered them. He wrote them with inspiration and power, and his writings have changed the world. Stephen didn't have a very long life. Didn't have a lengthy career in ministry. In a sense, this may have been his only high-profile public sermon, and yet it changed the world. How? Because it changed Saul. In many ways, the experience of Stephen's remarks were, were a flashpoint, a convicting moment that, that began to move Saul in the direction of conversion. We can say that God used Stephen to change the world because he changed Saul. 
And it wasn't just his words. It was also what he did. Let's look at what he did. We're told by Luke several times, and again, it's the problem with not being able to read the entire long passage. It goes back into chapter 6, but we're told at the end of chapter 6 that while he was speaking, while he's on trial for his very life, his face was lit up like the face of an angel. He wasn't snarling. He wasn't trembling. He was incredibly bold, mind you. He's not afraid of telling people the truth, but there's no ill will there. Even when they're hurling rocks at him, he's praying for them. And his heart is in this settled posture of peace. Paul had never seen anyone suffer like this. He'd never seen anyone die like this. It wasn't just what he said that had impact. It was the brilliance of how he suffered. It changed the world. What was the secret of it, do you think? Not just what he said. I think it's what he saw. It's not just what he knew. It's it's what he saw. What did he see? Just as he was about to die. This is in chapter 7, verses 54 and 55. They were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. And what did he say? He said, look, I see heaven open. The Son of Man standing there at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is always a reference to the throne room. Because it's a throne room, it's also a courtroom. Remember, we've talked about this a little bit before. We we Canadians, we like to believe in the separation of powers. That's a good thing. That the courts, the judicial process is over here, and and the government, the political process is over there. But for most of history and most cultures, that wasn't the case. The throne room was the courtroom. Justice and power were fused together. In most nations, most kingdoms, the throne room is the courtroom. It's important to see what's at work here. Jesus is not seated at the right hand of God. That's an image, a familiar one, that that many times in the Bible we're given. That Jesus ascends to heaven after completing his work here and takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. He's seated because the work is done. It's finished. The seating of Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God is, is an expression of the completion of salvation. But, but this is one of the few times, in fact, I think it's the only time that I know of where we're given the picture of the courtroom and there is Jesus standing. Very unusual, but very understandable. Anyone who's standing in a courtroom before the bench, before the throne, What are they doing? They're making an appeal, aren't they? They're making an advocate. F.F. Bruce, I think, who wrote one of the brilliant commentaries on the book of Acts, puts it like this, that while Stephen was confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7, Jesus Christ ever lives to intercede for us. You know what Stephen was seeing. He was seeing visually with his eyes what he'd just been talking about principally in his sermon. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you're in him, when your sins have been imputed to him and his righteousness has been imputed to you, when the Holy Father on his throne in that heavenly courtroom looks at you, what does he see? Stephen knows because... 
He sees the righteous father looking at him and Jesus standing there in between. Let me put it this way. The moment, the moment that Stephen was in an earthly courtroom that was condemning him, he knew that in the only true courtroom that really matters, he was being commended. He was in an earthly courtroom condemning him. He saw the heavenly courtroom commending him. There was nobody on earth speaking up for him, but Jesus was. And you know what that meant? It meant that for him, that earthly courtroom wasn't anywhere near as real or as important as the heavenly one. The heavenly one is forever. The heavenly one is the real one. As a result, his face lit up like an angel. Wouldn't matter what anybody said about him on earth. Who cares what they think? I'm commended. Notice the way that he didn't just indicate the awareness with his speech, with his head. The way that the Holy Spirit helped him to sense it in his heart. Here's the principle then. To the degree that you don't just know that you're loved by God in Jesus, but you're rejoicing in it, you're in awe of just how much you're loved, just how much you are his delight, how much you're honored by God in Christ. To that degree, you'll be able to face anything. Again, here's the secret. In the ultimate courtroom, you know you're being commended. Now look, here, we're at the end. And now maybe I can tell you why our secular culture just doesn't give us anything like this to handle suffering. And I tell you using some very old words. Words of a man named Augustine. St. Augustine said, basically, it, it's all about ordering the loves of your life properly. You understand, he says, we all love things. But do we love things in the proper order? Do you love the things that are most important first and above all and then other things after that? He says that basically the key to life and to understanding and surviving sufferings is about reordering your loves. That the great problems of life come from the disordering of love. Somebody once summarized his teaching in this single statement that only love of the immutable can bring tranquility. The immutable, the unchanging, a reference to God himself, only that can bring peace. Only if your highest love, only if the thing that you love most in life is something that can be never taken away from you. If it's not based on your performances or your ups and downs or your circumstances, if it can't change, only if your highest love is that can you face life with tranquility. You set your heart on the one thing suffering can't destroy, and you'll be able to face anything. Let's wrap up just by thinking for a minute about what Stephen did. What did he actually accomplish? We've talked about already one of the most important things. We know that, that Stephen's speech changed the life of a man who changed the world. It changed Paul. But notice that they've at the very end, this is in chapter 8, verse 1. Luke makes it very clear here. On that day, the day of his martyrdom, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. 
And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You see how God used it? Jesus has told his disciples over and over again that the gospel isn't just for, the, for Jerusalem. It's not just for Jewish people. It's, it's for all people. But they hadn't left. They were still hunkered down there. Jesus said, I want you to go to, to Samaria. I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. I want you to go to all these different cultures and places. And they hadn't gone. And yet, God uses this, this moment of deep and painful suffering to push them out. The death of Stephen leads to an explosion of missionary activity. Stephen's suffering leads to the growth of God's church and God's glory, just, just like Jesus' death led to God's greater glory. And I'm telling you that, that your suffering, as painful, as unbearable as sometimes it may be, can also be a way to glory. If you know how to, to do what Stephen did, look at heaven and appreciate Jesus there doing what he does. If you know how the, the Spirit of God can take the things that he said and root them deeply in your life and, and reshape, reorder the loves of your life. Every time suffering comes on you, you realize your loves aren't properly ordered. You'll never love God like you should, but when suffering comes, if everything that you do is directed at reordering the love of your life through the Word and through worship and, and through prayer, and you just try to see what Stephen saw and, and seek God's help, I tell you, as difficult as it is, suffering will turn to glory. You'll see some glory in this life. We'll, we'll all see greater glory later. You know, that's exactly what Joseph said to his brothers, wasn't it? One of the previous efforts that, that God used, sent a deliverer. Joseph suffered so much at the hands of his brothers. But in Genesis 50, he says, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. What they did was awful. It wasn't okay, but God used it. Joseph said, my suffering led to glory. And yours can too. If you take hold of what Stephen did, if you, you see what he saw, God will do what he did with Stephen. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that you have shown us, even through a world that is filled with pain and misery, that you've shown us not just how to endure, but how to triumph over it, how to someday see it ended. We pray, Lord, while we're here, that you would show us how to love you and understand you, to look at you the way Stephen did, so that our lives, even our suffering, can count for something, can lead to glory. Not through your Spirit. You give searing insight into each of our lives. And you know the circumstances that, that inhabit and surround each person here. Help us, help us to understand better right now. Many of us are trying to figure out how does this apply. 
How does it fit with the uncertainty and the confusion, the pain of my life right now? God, I pray that you would come to the aid of anyone here who's struggling to see how in the world can this apply to my life today? Most of all, would you open our eyes to see your son Jesus standing at the right hand of the heavenly throne, whispering our own names into the ear of our heavenly father. We pray this together in Jesus' name.